intrigued me. As I began writing the sermon on it, however, I realized that I had one particular idea of what the promised land was. So I might need some help to make this work. And of course, this was part of the point of the speaker in our adult religious education class, that we can only see our own vision through our own eyes. So we all benefit from hearing other people's perspectives now and again. So I looked for some help. I knew I was going to need to ask others what their visions of the promised land were. And funny thing, I just happened to have a bunch of ministers visiting me from out of town this weekend. So rather than regurgitating what they told me, I asked them to share with you from their own voices their view of the promised land. Together, we will be able to create a more complex and beautiful picture than any of us could have done alone. What a blessing that they are willing to share in this endeavor with us this morning. You will hear from Reverend Rebecca Froome, Reverend Nancy McDonald Ladd, Chaplain and future Reverend Seth Carrier, <laughs> Reverend Susan Cartmel, Reverend Peggy O'Connor, and the Reverend Dr. Laurel Hallman in that order. When Moses and the Israelites wandered in that desert for 40 years, they journeyed towards a land that had been promised to their distant ancestors. To Jacob and his father Isaac and his father Abraham before him. Abraham who journeyed into a land that had been promised to him by God. So who is making this promise of a promised land? Who is making that promise to that group wandering in the desert? Was it Moses, the prophet, his siblings Aaron and Miriam? Was it the God who spoke to them or the God who spoke to their ancestors? Or perhaps the ancestors who passed down this family story from Sarah to Rebecca to Leah and Rachel? Who is making the promise of a promised land? The prosperous farmer? The farmer in a summer without rain? The families telling the story generation to generation? The migrant traveling, circling around a campfire in unfamiliar and dangerous terrain? Perhaps... Perhaps the promised land is an inheritance, a story as inheritance, a story that is made and remade through the generations, fashioned and refashioned in each telling, in each questioning of the telling, in each transformation, as people wonder about the past trying to understand the story and wonder about the future, wonder about the story we are telling right now in this land as we speak of a promised land. So 
So some among this great traveling herd of ministers who have descended upon you this weekend actually traveled together to the Holy Land. Not a Holy Land, but the one, the one (laughs) that people think about, that fertile crescent of the Near Eastern Levant from which rose monotheism as we understand it. And in that place, we walked the streets of the most ancient inhabited city in the entire world, Jericho, a place surrounded by desert, full of bullet holes, a place depopulated by something so profound that it continues to tear that holy land apart. Hate, certainly. Tribalism, of course. But it wasn't even the encroaching desert that threatened that place, but something deeper that I might call the localization of devotion. When we take our devotion, when we take our sanctification and we place it onto some faraway, distant place, someplace distant enough that it is not for us a community that we can live in, but just something we can fight to defend, we place an astonishing burden on that location. And what becomes of a place when we project all of our ideals upon it? What becomes of a land when we decide that it symbolizes everything that this life promises us? What becomes of the rock from which Muhammad rose on his night ride? The land that Moses looked out on after traveling those 40 years in the wilderness? The road upon which Jesus carried his cross? What becomes of those places when we project all of our devotion onto them? The burden of all those expectations... The projection of all that holiness, it tears the promised land apart. The weight of its sanctity bears down upon that location. The very devotion that guides pilgrim footsteps into that place becomes in time that which leaves it riven more deeply by any of our religious hatred, by any of the threats that the desert might impose. The greatest weight on the Holy Land is the weight of our own sanctification. So, the burden of the promised land. Some far off place that some folks have traveled to to get on a plane. But what if the the promised land, the burden wasn't off somewhere, somewhere else. What if it was right here, right now, with us? What if the promised land is exactly what we're doing every day? Because, you know, I think it's nice to think about some utopian promised land where there's no violence and there's no poverty and there's no hunger. And maybe we'd all be like Buddha and Jesus and just be Zen but I don't know if I'd want to live there when I think about it a little further. Would I want to live in a place where I've already reached the epitome of spiritual enlightenment? Would I want to live in a place where there's no growth, where there's nowhere else for me to grow and learn and and, and get the satisfaction, receive the satisfaction of having achieved something spiritually anyway? And for me, I don't think the answer is I don't want to live there. I don't want to live in that utopia. And you know, I don't even want to live in a place where we all are even making mistakes and taking responsibility for them and being totally self-aware because that's sort of a little bit of enlightenment, right? Because we all make mistakes. 
I wouldn't even want to go to that magical place. I wouldn't want to be transported there because then it would take away the journey. And to me, that's the part of my spiritual journey that deepens me, that makes me the most whole, that gives me the most true sense of myself, is having gone through the mistakes, having gone through the hard times, having found those sources of strength and love, having received the strength and love from others. Those are the things that make my spiritual journey whole. So I would offer that we are in the promised land, right here, right now, exactly what we're doing. You guys are, are very uh, tolerant. Some families, when they get together, have a bake-off. <laughs> some, some people, some very rare and unusual tribes, have a preach-off. <laughs> we have designed this exercise, and you are <laughs> very tolerant. <laughs> Sam. The part of the story of the promised land that I never understood and don't like is the part about poor Moses, because he didn't get there. And whenever I thought about it and read about it, it made absolutely no sense to me. How was it possible that he didn't get to achieve the goal, go to the place they were all headed toward? There's an explanation in the Hebrew Bible about how he'd done something wrong. It was very small, but that was it, the fatal flaw that disallowed him from entering into Canaan. Never made sense to me, and I don't think after all the things he did well that that should disqualify him from getting there. Mostly I never thought about it. I tried not to because I don't like the incongruities in the Bible, so I just, just walk away. <laughs> it's worked. It works, actually. <laughs> but the older I get, the more unfair it seems that people don't make the promised land, especially if they've been trekking a long time in that direction. And then I decided to think more about the story and really wonder if it wasn't left in this unsettling way so that we could think about what the promised land was meant to be. And then I started to wonder, maybe, maybe the promise unfolded the minute that Moses put his staff out and parted those waters and people had the courage to walk across. Maybe the promise unfolded when he went up Mount Sinai and got those Ten Commandments. And people started to try to live with each other as though they were really neighbors who had to make it together as a human community. Maybe the promise started to unfold when they complained about no food and wanted to go home, back to slavery, and then started to trust that there would be manna on the ground every morning. Maybe the promise unfolded before them when they got cranky and wanted more and got the quail, or when he held out his staff and water appeared from a rock, maybe the promise found them as much as they searched for it. Maybe the promised land isn't so much a destination as 
the ability to just put one foot in front of the other and look for something better. And in that moment, grace comes to us, even as much as we find grace. Everybody having fun so far? (laughs) So we've heard lots of questions. So I'm going to just start out with a declarative statement. I don't believe that the promised land is a place. I suppose I could sit down now, but I won't because I am a preacher. (laughs) I'm going to go a little historical on you. So, you know, in the 4th century when the church was fully ensconced in Rome, our church fathers, Jerome in particular, said, well, we need to get people out of Rome. We need them to have some experience of their faith. And so they encouraged people to go to Jerusalem to see the holy sites, to experience their faith, to feel their faith, to see their faith. And that worked pretty well. If you had the means, you could go and you would travel, and lots of people did this. But then a little pesky thing happened. The Turks cut off all access to what we think of as the Holy Land, and specifically to Jerusalem. And so they had to think something else up. So they came up with the idea of local pilgrimages, So, throughout Europe, pilgrim paths were formed and pilgrim destinations, uh, holy places, places of healing, cathedrals. People would make these long journeys. I don't know if the church fathers really knew what would happen, but it gave the people something to do and it was a spiritual journey. I think they might have been surprised, though, because things happen to people on these journeys, these pilgrimages. They began in one way, but they would end up in a different place. And I don't mean just physically end up in a different place, internally. Something would happen as they took that journey, as they traveled along a path, thinking about their faith. So the whole local pilgrimage industry took off, and all kinds of pathways were formed. But then, as will happen, Wars ravaged Europe, and those journeys became too dangerous to take. And so they reinvented, or they revitalized an ancient, ancient tradition, walking the labyrinth. Cathedrals put them in their floors. They put them in gardens. They put them on hillsides. You could make them anywhere. You could make one in your own home. And they did. And people walked the circles And they walked, and they walked, and they walked, and they walked, and they came to the center. And then they walked back again. Simple, simple exercise. And lo and behold, they discovered that if you did it enough, it changed you internally. As you meditated, as you thought about your faith, as you thought about your life, something would happen. You would begin the labyrinth in one mood and you'd end it in another. You'd begin it with questions and you'd end it with maybe different questions. The labyrinth became the new pilgrimage. Well, you know, Susan was telling us about Moses in the wilderness. And when we look at the wilderness, from Egypt to the promised land is a couple of weeks journey, not 40 years. So the question is, what in the name of heavens took him 40 years? 
Were they that bad at navigation? (laughs) Did the sun not come up in the east and go down in the west so they could figure out which way to go? Well, what, what we think is they walked in circles at times. They just walked in circles, like, like a huge labyrinth. And what would be the reason to do that? Why would they walk in circles? I don't know about you, but when I really am troubled about something, I walk. I walk. And I don't have a destination. If I have a destination, I can't do the work I need to do in my heart and my mind. I randomly wander. And that's what they did in the wilderness. They wandered. And in that wandering, they changed from disparate slaves into a community, into a people. They were transformed. And I I really think that the promised land is internal. It is an internal action we take. It's an internal journey we make. And when we get someplace on that journey, because I don't think it has an end, we are transformed. And when enough of us take the journey, and when we start journeying together, we become a community, a beloved community We are not perfect, but we recognize we're all on that journey together. And if we keep going together, the hope, my hope, is that we find ourselves turning wherever we are into that promised land, that peaceable kingdom where our hopes and dreams are realized. I am going to personalize this. I have to in this place because uh, in 1979, I came here as, I came to Tulsa as a John Wolfe preaching scholar and spent some time up here with Bill Gold, talking about theology, needless to say, and um, learning about this place. I came with my nine-year-old son, and he thought this church was the neatest place he'd ever been, challenged only by Oral Roberts' praying hands. He thought, <laughs> he, he thought that was pretty cool, too. But, um, but he really liked this sanctuary and this place. And so when I think of the journey or I think of the wilderness or I think of uh, all the things that, that, uh, that are metaphors in relationship to ministry, I can think about starting out the, uh, the journey actually here. And in Tulsa, and certainly at theological school and, and other places, because there were a lot of teachers along the way, but this is very primary to me. So, so I thought about the wilderness journey as looking back now on my own ministry. And uh, there was plenty of complaining and um, for all the reasons that we've already heard, and there was plenty of walking in circles and walking labyrinths and trying to find the, the, the center of being... Um, I was remembering Stanley Kunitz's wonderful words. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own. <laughs> Though some principle of being, some principle of being abides, from which I have struggled not to stray. Those are 
are deep words for me and abiding words for me and probably mark a lot of my journey through the wilderness because as I look back, I think, well, some, some still unspoken principle of being did abide, still abides, has uh, driven me forward in my ministry, even at times when it was very, the path was very unknown. People told me I had promise. Um, perhaps, I, I, you know, maybe, maybe they saw things in me that I couldn't see. But I think perhaps it was that principle of being that they began to feel that, that perhaps it was some sense of being called by something larger that actually made me give up my home where I was, go off with my then seven-year-old to Chicago to school, come here with my nine-year-old, then nine-year-old, uh, to study preaching. Uh, perhaps it was something that was driving me. I was, some said, driven. <laughs> but some perhaps also worried for me. I don't I say perhaps, but they did. Because there were very few women in the ministry at all. There was no assurance I'd get a job. There was no assurance that I could make enough money to support myself and my son. These were different times. It was a wilderness in social and political ways uh, for those of us who felt called to have a voice that spoke from pulpits. But now I look back. It's uh, 33 years since I was here, not 40, but a long time. Liberally interpret that, a long time. Um, 31 years since I was ordained. I have another life I'm living now. One among those many lives. This one's my own too. It's just not out of a pulpit. And I look back at all I could go on and on and ring the changes of all the things that have happened in that time as a movement, as churches, as a people of faith. And I find myself overwhelmed with joy that, for example... Elizabeth Cartmel Ladd is going to be ordained here today. And she sits with a great uh, cloud of women ministers who now are in our pulpits and people aren't so surprised. It's a fabulous thing. And maybe that's what it means to be continuing on a wilderness journey. And, and you just look back once in a while and you just say, whoa, that was hard. <laughs> and we've come a long, long way. And I, for one, am grateful. So if nothing else, I hope that you've learned a little bit more about me, because this is actually what we do for fun in my house. (laughs) It's true. We sometimes debate where the offering should go in the liturgy over dinner. It's a special family that we have, and I would ask to have no other. Ah. But you may have heard that there are indeed many promised lands in what we just heard. Different lands of milk and honey, of nourishment and sweetness. Lands where there is always enough. Lands where people know deep in their bones that they are loved, cherished, children of the universe. Lands where we do not just tolerate diversity, but celebrate it. Lands where we live in harmony, 
and wherever we are, we are there. In his book, Exodus and Revelation, political scientist Michael Walzer posits the enduring lessons of the Exodus story. He says that wherever it is we live, it's probably Egypt. Perhaps you lack some sort of freedom now. Is it possible that you could be in bondage in some way? In our modern world, I certainly often find myself feeling a slave to my email or perhaps my smartphone. And there are times that I feel enslaved by my own past, by past traumas, by the experiences that have been most difficult for me that I have not fully healed. And even when we try to free ourselves from what holds us back, how often do we fall back into comfort of old, soothing, and perhaps unhealthy behavior? How often have you made the same mistake over and over and over again? How much forgiveness do we all need each day? What part of your life is in Egypt? But the next enduring lesson Walter points out is that there's a better place, a world more fair, full of promise and hope. There's always something better. There's always possibility. No matter how great things get, better always exists. We never quite reach absolute perfection. The closer we get to the promised land, the further away it moves. It's always just out of reach because we are human perfectly imperfect. So this idyllic place where everyone has what they need and there's peace and joy is elusive. Right in front of us, we can see it sometimes from the top of a mountain, but we can't quite get there. And good, because I'd rather have reality than perfection, wouldn't you? And Walter's third enduring lesson is that the way to the promised land is through the wilderness. There's no other way to get there from here, except by the hard way, being tested as we go. No shortcuts. It takes hard work, blood, sweat, and many tears. But this is the whole point, the journey through the wilderness. Not knowing quite where we are going, losing our way over and over again, dealing with the difficulties that we encounter rather than shying away. And if we are lucky, we have companions for the journey. We know that we are never alone. We travel with our people who challenge us and love us just as we are. They celebrate our joys with us. They lament our pain with us. They help us along when we are weary and they remind us that we can do it. We can get through anything. We can always make it to the other side of whatever comes our way. This is why we gather in this place. In some ways, it is already a promised land. And in many more ways, it is the journey. It is the place where we do the work of freeing ourselves from whatever traumas constrain our own growth. It is the place of nourishment and sweetness that sustains us for each step of the journey. 
And it is the community that walks with us every step of the way. May we live into our own promise. Amen.